Hey, welcome back, everyone, to another episode of The Investment News Podcast. I'm Jeff Benjamin. We have Bruce Kelly back, co-hosting after a two-week hiatus, working on all his important projects. Bruce, how you doing today? I'm back, baby. All right. Love it. <laughs> I don't know if that's good or not, but I'm, I'm back for what it's worth. And we got a lot of fun stuff to talk about t- today. Uh, non-traded REITs and all the shenanigans going on there. We have joining us today Kevin Gannon, Chief Executive Officer of the Investment Bank at Robert A. Stanger & Co. Kevin, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you for being here and uh, stepping in to, to enlighten our audience a little bit. Uh, maybe you can start by telling us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, I'm the Chairman CEO of Stanger. I've been here since 1983, believe it or not. All I'm right. sure a lot of the listeners uh, probably weren't even born then. Uh, but I've uh, been around since 83. I, I, I came out of, uh, I was a Deloitte guy. I was Lloyd Haskins and Sells in the day. I was a tax manager there and I joined Stanger in 83 and I'm the chairman CEO now. And uh, we've been at it uh, for over 40 years here at Stanger. So uh, it's been, this is my 40th year with the company. So uh, it's been good. We're an investment bank that specializes in looking at alternative investments, uh, non-traded REITs, non-traded BDCs, preferred, uh, non-traded preferreds, interval funds, Delaware statutory trusts, opportunity zone deals. We track all that stuff. So we track the fundraising, the fee structures, the performance, uh, and we do a lot of M&A. Where we make our real money is M&A in this space, merging non-traded REITs into each other, into public companies, or liquidating uh, the asset portfolios. So uh, we kind of touch it all. So it's been a good run. All right. Well, you sound like the perfect person for this topic. I know Bruce has written about this recently, the um, Blackstone REIT in particular, that uh, has, and Starwood, both have uh, big giant REITs, non-traded REITs that have uh, limited their redemptions, which is causing a little bit of a, of a dust up. Bruce, you want to, you want to, kick it off and kind of set the foundation here with Kevin? Yeah, sure. I think Kevin's being a little uh, fa- falsely modest there uh, a little bit. I mean, Kevin, you guys, in terms of REITs and everything, and the alternative industry that mostly sold until recently, up until five or six years ago through so-called independent broker-dealers, you guys were the really the, the main game or the only game in town in terms of research, right? In terms of Tracking these things, their, their long-term fundraising history, your knowledge, your 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 you know backroom knowledge and discussions with the managers and the sponsors of these things. You guys are it in in the business, as, as yeah, I we can think see. We, we think we cover the gamut, Bruce. We have the Stanger report, which tracks the fee structures of all these deals. Right. The interval fund report, the IPA Stanger monitor that tracks the performance. Uh, we have uh, the Stanger Market Pulse, which tracks all the fundraising of all the non-traded REITs, BDCs, Opportunity Zone deals, DSTs, etc. And then we have uh, we have just a number of publications. Plus, we write full-blown equity analyst research reports on the NAV REITs, Aries, uh, the Aries REITs, Blackstone, Brookfield. Hines, JLL, right, KKR, right. Nuveen, et cetera. Right. So we cover them all. So we, we do a lot of research on That is correct. Right. So you, there's a tremendous amount of information, Jeff, that these guys, that Kevin and his firm and his team uh, publish and push out into the marketplace every month. And when I started writing about these products really back, you know, 2006, 7, 8, it was because the, um, you know, the commercial real estate market was having so much difficulty 
as the, you know, as real estate prices and valuations uh, were, were, you know, reaching a crisis kind of level there. And that's kind of where I met Kevin and have been talking to him on and off uh, and people at his firm ever since. And what's interesting here is that um, about almost two weeks ago now, on December 1st, um, well, I think just backing up a little bit, Kevin, you guys have seen increased redemptions uh, from investors into REITs, meaning they want their money out of the REIT throughout the year as interest rates were going up and fears of a recession were kind of getting uh, more clear in the marketplace, I think. You wrote about that in November, I think, in your research note, That's right? That's correct. That's correct. That's correct. We've and seen- that set up on December 1st, Blackstone REIT, B-REIT, they call it in the industry, which is a $70 billion, $69, $70 billion, you know, NAV REIT. They said that they had reached full redemptions in October uh, and had redeemed $2 billion worth of shares, I believe. And then in um, November, they also had redemption requests from investors, again, trying to get their money out, kind of exceed the um, uh, go full, but exceed a little bit what they had, what, what, what they were able to give out by their, you know, by the, by the bylaws of the read, I guess. So not everybody could get all their redemptions out. And that caused a lot of panic. I mean, you know, and you had various Stephen Schwartzman and these kinds of people talking about this on, on, on CNBC and the like. And people all of a sudden, I think, looked up and, and took notice and said, holy smokes, what, what's a $70 billion non-traded REIT? <laughs> and why can't people get their money out? And then the next week, you had a report that Starwood, which is a $15, $16 billion REIT, huge, very, very large, but not as large as, as B-REIT. Uh, there was a report in the Journal and Barron's, I believe, saying that Starwood was telling financial advisors that they were also limiting withdrawals. So just give us your thoughts on on what happened. All generally accurate statements, Bruce, as always with you. Bruce and I have corresponded for the better part of 10 years, I think. Yeah, something and, like that. Uh, we, we feed you good information. We try to anyway. And uh, so here's kind of what's gone on. Uh, the, both BREIT and SREIT uh, raised a lot of money, uh, as, as you point out, and have NAVs, uh, you know, roughly $70 billion and for, uh, for BREIT and 14 or $15 billion for SREIT. Uh, that's the amount of NAV that's out there in the marketplace, equity raised and appreciated uh, during the last several years. Uh, investors uh, this past year have been uh, asking more and more for a redemption. And each of those deals was structured. They were structured intentionally with a liquidity sleeve and with the ability to provide a limited amount of liquidity because previous uh, generations of non-traded REITs were criticized for that. They didn't provide enough liquidity. So these deals are built to provide liquidity up to with it with a cap on liquidity of 2% a month, 5% a quarter, which is 20% a year, roughly. That's a big number. In these deals, you're talking about some fairly substantial liquidity, which beforehand we never saw before. We never saw liquidity uh, opportunities in alternative investments like that. And they not only have, uh, they've been getting uh, hit with redemptions, but they've been meeting those redemptions up to the cap. It's a cap. It's not a gate. 
No one's coming down and saying, we're not giving you all the liquidity we promised. They're giving you the liquidity they promised up to uh, the cap. And the cap is 2% a month, 5% right. a quarter. Right. And we think that number this quarter alone will be probably in the neighborhood of $4.5 billion in the non-traded REIT space, uh, roughly something equal to the fundraising for the quarter in all likelihood. Huh. inclusive of the drip money. So right. it's, there, there's a lot of liquidity in this space. It's a positive thing, Bruce. I've been quoted as saying, I think we should um, we should cue the chariots for these guys because they've really done something that's never been done before. And while it's not maybe the liquidity people might otherwise want, you, you can't have uh, infinite liquidity, right, in an illiquid investment, right? But they've given you a substantial amount of liquidity, and it should be satisfactory to those who thought about what they were buying in the first place. Meanwhile, uh, BREIT is kicking off uh, four. Is it four and a half percent distribution yield? Yes. Um, so that's an excellent return. I mean, when people talk about a bond-like type of investment, and it's backed by Blackstone, I mean, I think that's you know. That's doing exactly the kind of yield that they promised to investors initially, I believe, right? Exactly. Not, not only that, Bruce, their past couple of years returns have been off the charts, right? Because they did they did something that is really what we can't forget. We, we hired them, right? We, hi, we, the industry, hired them to go and figure out what's the next mover, what's the, what's the asset class most likely to perform well over the next several years, and they wisely picked – um, a multifamily and logistics slash industrial, the two most, the two hottest performing sectors the last five years. I was with John Gray back in early 17 and sat with him and said, so, okay, what are you guys going to do? You know, what are you going to pick? What's, what's the next five years look like? And that's exactly what he told me. And he was, he was hundred percent spot on right. And uh, they produced some phenomenal returns to investors over the last five years, as did Starwood. Starwood's done a great job. Uh, performance-wise also. So uh, all it's all been very good. Most advisors have always been told, this is a mutual fund, take it or leave it. But generic investment options aren't good enough to meet the evolving expectations of today's clients. Helios Tools solves the customization challenge. It's a tech-driven process developed by Helios's team of investment experts and quantitative researchers that allows advisors to build and customize model portfolios based on unique client needs and preferences in just a few clicks. Find out how Helios Tools can help you create a better client experience and set your firm apart in a cost-effective, scalable way. Visit www.heliosdriven.com forward slash Helios tools to learn more. You say that, I guess, liquidity is better than it used to be. Do you think that there's an issue here of lack of education and maybe even lack of disclosure and transparency when it comes to putting an investor in one of these things that's not 100% liquid? I mean, it, people should have a sense for what they're getting into and they shouldn't be running for the exits the first sign of trouble, right? Well, I don't, I don't think... I think uh, <laughs> 
the I think the disclosure is extraordinary in these documents. It's well disclosed. Mm -hmm. uh, we talk about it all the time. We thought it was a fairly aggressive level of liquidity, 2% a month, 5% a quarter, 20% a year. That's mm -hmm. an aggressive amount of liquidity for an otherwise illiquid type of investment. And you're investing in real estate, right? That's what you're right. investing Kevin, in. Kevin, in the past, to give a comparison, again, my, my memory, you, you obviously know better, but I'm recalling you know, old non-traded REITs, you know, with like a 5% liquidity for the year or something, right? What was yeah, the... well, actually, Bruce, what was done um, was uh, usually they dedicated the uh, dividend reinvestment plan uh, to fund uh, the share repurchase plan, which is where the liquidity came from. Right. And that number looked, had more like a three handle on it, meaning if they paid a six uh, at that time, maybe half the people dripped. And so you got maybe 3% of the investors could get out using the, the drip. They might, they might do more than that, but that's kind of what was expected. Now, that, and that's per annum, Bruce. Now right. it's uh, the liquidity here is uh, totally different. They've, they've produced a liquid, they built the thing. The engine says we're going to have the ability to meet liquidity at 2% uh, a month, 5% a quarter, and they create a liquidity sleeve that is in position to fund that for more than 12 months. So they're sitting there ready to go and they can constantly look at their portfolio and, and cull their portfolio and create more liquidity if they need it looking into the future. But right now for the foreseeable future, these guys covered it. So they built it right. So in the old days, like 3% a year versus these companies we're talking about, which is 20% liquidity or redemption per year, roughly. Yes. Staggering, okay. staggering number. And think right. about it. If you're if you got seventy billion dollars of equity, you're saying I'm gonna produce fourteen billion dollars this coming year if you need it, right? And they're right. committed to do it. And I I for everything we can see, we think they got the horsepower to get it done easy. We think right. it's a layup that they're they're set for that. You know, beyond twenty twenty into twenty twenty four, we'll see how what they gotta do. They probably gotta liquidate some assets in twenty twenty three to make that uh, extend the runway, if you will. But and you're talking about B REIT, obviously. B, I'm talking about B REIT, yes. Right. Hey, what, Kevin? What are the uh, the lockup periods that we're talking about here? What are the lockup periods? The the they they basically can redeem out on a monthly basis, and it's at the the uh, the cap, not lockout, but the cap is two percent a month, uh, five percent a quarter. That's the cap. So uh, that's what they're committing to provide liquidity for. That's, no, I'm talking about I'm talking about from the investor perspective. What how, what is your initial commitment in years? Uh, you don't have any initial commitment in years. You can you can get out the next day if you want. You know you don't, you can get out immediately. There's no lockup. Okay, I didn't realize that. But these do these are qualified or accredited investors only, right? Uh, no, you the non-accredited can also invest in it, but most of the investors in these programs are accredited investors. The wirehouses limit uh, the investors to accredited investors, uh -huh. but it's okay. eligible for people who are less than accredited investors. Let, let's um, let's explain to our audience the the purpose of having these restrictions on redemptions. I, I mean. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, obviously that's a good, that's we're talking about point. investing in real estate, and it's a long term, you know, because you can invest in traded REITs, right? But what's yeah. the what's the advantage of 
a non-traded REIT structure from an investment perspective? The, the, the advantage is this, you're getting in and out at net asset value, right? So in you get in the deal at net asset value, you get out of the deal at net asset value. On a traded REIT, you get in and out at the traded price. That traded price during the course of a year, and this past year is a great example, um, that traded price can be anywhere from a 20% premium to net asset value to a 20% discount to net asset value on average. Mm -hmm. And the entire REIT market, the traded REIT market right now, is trading at about a 20% discount to net asset value. At the beginning of the year, it was a 20% premium. So if I bought in January, I paid a 20% premium, now I'm getting out a 20% discount, I got killed, right? Yet mm -hmm. the NAV itself didn't change that much. It changed maybe 5% or 10%. It didn't change 40%. So that's the fundamental advantage of the of the of the NAV REIT, meaning you're you're investing in real estate, you're you're getting in and out at the real estate value, and they've set it up. You got you don't get a hundred percent out because you you've got to agree to the cap, which is the two percent five percent we've been talking about. But you know, for someone who wants a long term exposure, it's the right way to do it. And what you're betting on, uh, in truth. Is you're betting on uh, uh, a management team, uh, a B uh, uh, uh Blackstone, Starwood, Nuveen, etc., Cantor uh, uh, Fitzgerald, all those guys to produce a superior return based upon the complexion of the AUM that they build the portfolio from, right? Right. It's but not just what I was what I was getting at is the point of of having li of limiting uh, redemptions is that these are investing in something that is traditionally an illiquid type of investment, real estate. And for this to work, the money has to be invested for a long time, correct? And if yeah. investors are popping in and out, it's difficult to do that. Exactly right. You, you need to be a long-term investor to be in these things, generally speaking. But people have change in needs, change in circumstance, right? That's why right. when these things were built, with the two and five percent uh, caps in, on liquidity, I felt I thought that was very strong. I, mm -hmm. I still feel that's a very strong number, given what we're really trying to do here is get the exposure to real estate, and that exposure paid off, right? These guys outperformed the traded REIT uh, market by a wide margin the last uh, couple, last five years, and uh, because they focused on asset classes that that outperformed, right? And it just outperformed. Don't they always outperform the traded REIT market? Uh, I, I, well, so far they have, <laughs> good mm -hmm. point. So far they have, the last five years they have, but over time you would think that pendulum will swing, right? That will, that pendulum will swing at some point. What about a secondary market for, for people that can't get out? Is there a, a secondary market available yeah, there are secondary market players mm -hmm. out there where you could go and list your units and you could expect to get a discount to the NAV in that secondary market. Companies like Central Trade and Transfer, uh, owned by a company called Orchard, a client of ours, a client of Stanger's, mm -hmm. um, but they they provide, you can go and list your units and, and get uh, get uh, bids on your on your shares if if you. It's will. pretty deep discount though, Kevin. Right, the secondary market for. Yeah, I think I think we're, we're going to test that this year a little, Bruce. We haven't had to test it yet because there was no uncovered 
uh, redemption requests until right. recently, right? right? So we're going to test that this year. We'll probably test it to the tune of a couple billion dollars. So it'll be interesting uh, to see uh, what investors will pay for those units uh, if it gets that far. Right. Kevin, I want to ask you about a little bit about the history of this type of scenario that we're in right now. Obviously, non-traded REITs are not brand new. Real estate investing is not new. You've been at Stanger since the Hoover administration. So <laughs> you must have seen this. What Does this happen every time there's a, there's a, looks like there's trouble in the real estate space? You have people rushing to the exits. I mean, to me, that gets back to my original question. Are these investors being informed and educated in a transparent way? You know, I'd like to think so for this reason. Um, usually, uh, you've got you to hold real estate mm-hmm. rather than panic at the first sign of anything that bothers you. We've had a lot of stuff going on in the space. We had a 50 basis points in- increase in the Fed fund rate yesterday, right? Mm-hmm. And we've had multiple increases. Interest rates have gone from, you know, in the twos uh, for financing of real estate into the sixes, you know, over the last several months. And so that's a lot of a lot of noise in the space, and everyone's trying to figure out what that means to value. Yet, isn't a complete consensus on what all that means to value. So uh, it's going to take a little time for it to sort out. And there will always be someone who says, "I'm out," right? And they want to get out. And and this is set up for that. It's set up for up to 20% of the people can get out per annum, right? That's how it's built. So I think that's a pretty good segue and if people are need more liquidity than that those people should have invested in this thing right they if they think they just want to tap out at the first sign of of some kind of noise then they probably shouldn't have invested in this product yeah but that's kind of like hindsight obviously these people shouldn't have invested in this i look at it that way if all these people are rushing to the exits by this scenario which isn't the worst scenario we've ever seen in real estate that to me, again, it's like, why are these people in these investments? Well, always a good question. I think if you look at the performance the last couple of years, it's been so staggering. These investors would have passed on that opportunity. They've had, mm-hmm. you know, uh, a, a gigantic run. Uh, the three year uh, uh, average total return, three years, 15 and a half, two years, 21 for B yeah. rate. Uh, one year is 13 and change. So some staggering numbers they couldn't have got anywhere else. And so that's the reason why you do it. And then marginally, uh, people, you know, hit the sell ticket and they, they, and they hit the cap and then they yeah. just got to deal with that, that they don't get all the liquidity they would desire in a perfect world. But there is no perfect world. What's been designed here is extraordinary. I wouldn't have put $500,000 into Bitcoin in November at 65,000 if I'd have known it was going to go down to 17,000, right? <laughs> yeah, of course, of course. Now, obviously, uh, hindsight's uh, uh, always interesting. But my, my point is, this was built for this, right? It was built, you're betting on all these management teams, right? You're betting mm-hmm. on the MIRIs, the SREs, the NUVINs, the uh, JLLs, etc. And uh, you're betting on them to pick right and make good decisions mm-hmm. and build it right and finance it right and uh, and manage it right and then deal with the liquidity sleeve and deal with investors' desires. The, those are the unknowns. So they've been doing a great job of that for the last five, six, seven years. And now we hit a little bump in the road. I think it's a, I think it's a small bump. I think in, a, in six months, we'll be looking in the rear view mirror and we're going to say, hey, this was uh, not so bad. This was 
in a small bump, and it's just they hit the cap. It wasn't a, a big right. deal. They hit the cap. Well, maybe that's our headline for this podcast. People just need to calm down. Um, you yeah, know, I think I think they are. I think there's we, what we hear. And I was on a call yesterday with uh, some um, uh, of Wall Street uh, players who basically said the redemption activity they are seeing is coming from Asia. There's uh-huh. a, a big uh, uh, Asian uh, uh, sector that needs liquidity for other reasons, and they did really well with some of these securities. And they're cashing them out. And that's where the pressure is coming from. They're not mm-hmm. seeing any of it domestically. They're not seeing it domestically. So I think that's interesting. I don't know if we've talked about the fees yet. What kind of fees are people paying in these non-traded REITs? Okay. So the base asset management fee is 125 basis points. So 125 basis points on, on net asset value. That's the base uh, management fee. And then they pay 12.5% of total return subordinated to a 5% return, uh, but it's 100% catch up inside the five. So mm-hmm. basically, if you uh, had a 12.5% uh, return and you hurdled the five, you'd, you'd get 12.5% of the entire five plus the 125 basis points. On top of that, a lot of this is sold without any load on it. It's sold uh, by FAs and RIAs who are dropping the investment into a wrap account. And whatever wrap fee is in the wrap account, like any other security they drop into a wrap account, that's the fee they pay. And, and the minimums, what are they at? Do you know? Uh, they're twenty five hundred bucks. Twenty. I think they're, the minimum is twenty five hundred bucks, but the average is over a hundred. See, that to me is another point. If you get to twenty five hundred dollars for something that doesn't have a hundred percent liquidity, you're going to be dealing with less sophisticated investors. I think you know you're probably right in in some regard there, Jeff. Uh, the uh, and that's why many of the firms limit their investors to only accredited investors. Mm-hmm. So even though they're allowed to sell it to non-accredited, they sell it to only accredited. So that's part of what goes on in this space practically. But well, I, I flip it around on you, Jeff. I'd say this: if I um, if I only have say five or ten thousand dollars to invest. How else am I going to get exposure to the likes of uh, Blackstone, JLL, Starwood, Nuveen? You know what I mean? Those those yeah. high-powered uh, alternative asset managers. How am I going to get exposure to them? I can't. No, I'm, I'm in your camp. I'm among those people that believes smaller retail class investors should have access to these kind of things. But right. when you see stuff like this, it just makes me think, you know, there, there can always be a mismatch. You can't. Well, of course, yeah, of course. The the worst partners in the world for a deal like this, Jeff, are me and you. If you are a diehard long term real estate investor and you're in it for 20 years. Right. Mm -hmm. And I'm fickle. um, I got some money. Maybe next year I change my mind. I want to buy, you know, uh, Bitcoin. You know, uh, I'm I'm not your best partner in a deal. Right. Because I'm going to be more fickle. So you want people to be more educated. You want them to dedicate uh, a sleeve of investment that they're prepared to stick with for long term, or at least hopefully that's their desire. And if they change their mind, they have an outlet and their outlet has a cap on it. Right. Two five cap. So it should be just maybe limited to really, really rich people like Bruce Kelly. (laughs) Well, I don't know how rich that is. I'd say that might be a suitability. We We might have a suitability problem there, Jeff. Yeah, Jeff loves to count my money, uh, Kevin, for some reason. I don't know where 
he gets the math from. But I think, Kevin, my, my question for you, my, I think Jeff and you have just covered a lot of stuff. This whole dilemma uh, of not being able, of, of only paying back, paying out, or, or rather hitting your cap of redemptions, right, as Blackstone said it did for the month of November, is that you have, you have this proration process, right? So you're paying out a portion of what people want it to be redeemed. Yeah, there are two ways to handle it. Two ways to handle it. One right. is to prorate it, right? That's fair. Everybody gets a prorated share. The yes. other is the other way to handle it, and I've seen it handled this way in the past, is first come, first serve, right? Right. And that that stinks for the guy who, you know, woke up a week late, you know? So mm-hmm. they prorate it. That's kind of fair. And then if you if you didn't get out and you want to take more money off the table, you enter it next month and do the same thing until you get your the amount you want out. Right. So this is my question. What is the history? Uh, I, I know you just said it's this is, you know, the, you were speaking with some people. The redemptions seem to be coming from Asia. Stephen Schwartzman has said that recently as well, the, the head of Blackstone. What is the history of non-traded REITs and the proration process? Does that trigger, you know, Financial advisors do get anxious and panicky when they see headlines, right? Yeah, they do well, have anxiety. Does that trigger? Do they say, "Well, I was going to redeem, you know, half my clients' position or a third of my clients' position, clients' positions in this? Should I just, since they're going to prorate, should I just, you know, request a hundred percent of my clients' yeah, money out of here, I, I, knowing I can only get a third or fifty percent out at a given time? Does it trigger that kind of?" And to me, that's a psychologically dangerous um, uh, uh, wave to be caught in if you're Blackstone yeah, or the I, others. I think the history in this space, Bruce, is, is kind of simple. The deals were set up as life cycle deals. And the idea was in five to seven years, we'd liquidate or merge or list. And that would create that would be the liquidity event. And that's the old Leo Wells or Chris Cole type of REIT you're talking about. Of course. Right? Of course. So they would liquidate and... Uh, and people get their money back or some percentage of their money back, depending on how the deal performed. And uh, and lo and behold, over $100 billion worth of equity has been solved that way, meaning people got redeemed by liquidity events. So that has, in fact, happened with those deals. They weren't relying upon a redemption type situation that was only kind of a fail safe for basically deaths and disabilities for the most part. Now it's part of the mainstream. These guys, the all, all these players in this space have said, you know what, I'm gonna commit. I recognize people may have other needs. I'm gonna give them that liquidity of up to 20% a year. And I, I think it's phenomenal. It's, it's, and, they're, and they're living up to it. They're meeting those redemptions at that, up to that, up to that uh, cap. And it's 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 a positive attribute. And there, there happens to be a bump in the road with a lot of other noise out there in the world right now. People wanting to go to cash for a variety of reasons it may not relate to the real estate. It may relate to their other needs. Right. That's what they fundamentally say to us about the Asian investors needing liquidity because of margin situations in Asia. Uh, they, that's not they, they don't attribute it to the real estate itself. In fact, they say that they're not getting that kind of redemption requests uh, from U.S. investors. So we'll see how it plays out. Like I right. said, it's only the first quarter or so we've seen this. I don't think it's uh, a problem. I think it's absolutely something we want to watch and monitor. And all these things will 
will prove out NAV because eventually if we have to extend the runway by liquidating some assets, now we're going to see what the mark looks like relative to what we what we sell the asset for, right? So I think that'll be uh, more transparency. It's all good. I think it's all very positive for this space. I'm excited about it. I think it's the best thing that can happen, really, to see what how they handle liquidity, how they right. handle uh, the requests. And what happens? How long does it go? When does it abate? You know, all those things are up in the air. I think it's going to abate fairly quickly. And uh, they got plenty of liquidity to carry them to that point in time. So you're looking at this as kind of almost a test of these NA, these so-called NAV REITs, perpetual life NAV REITs, they call them, I guess. It's a test of their, you know, uh, of how they're how, how they've been constructed, in other words. Oh, oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, Bruce. We, we've always thought... It was a, a lot of liquidity uh, available, and we always wondered about that whether that made sense or not. And obviously, it makes sense, and we're seeing them uh, live up to their obligation, live up to their uh, what they projected that they would do. And we think that that's the exciting part of it to to watch these guys fulfill those orders and not blink. You know, not blink an eye. You know, basically between B Reit and S Reit alone, they're the better part of four billion dollars this quarter. Uh, four and a half billion dollars this quarter. That's a lot. That's a big commitment. And uh, I don't see anybody complaining. They're all saying, hey, that's what we said we'd do. Let's do it. All right. Jeff, you got anything else for, for Kevin? No, I'm 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 good. It really good stuff. And I really like your optimism, Kevin. It's that's I think that's what people need to hear. <laughs> it, well, not just, you know, I mean it's it's a good perspective to share with people that are thinking, you know, the sky is falling. We understand. We've uh, been around a long time. We've seen the sky fall, Jeff. And this, is, this, is, this isn't that moment. This is not that moment. This is uh -huh. not that moment. All right, Kevin, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. You're welcome, gentlemen. All right, thanks, Jeff. Launching every Monday, uh, it's another episode of The Investment News Podcast. We want to thank our very special guest, Kevin Gannon. Uh, from Stanger. We also want to thank our producer, Angelica Hester. You can find the podcast, of course, at investmentnews.com, as well as Apple, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher. Leave us a review on Apple. Please follow us on Spotify. Uh, if you're still on Twitter, you can reach Jeff there uh, at his handle, at Benji Ryder. Mine is at BD News Guy. We just want to wish everybody a happy holiday season, and we'll be back in 2023. Thanks very much.